to all of you tonight. Been looking forward to this. I enjoyed last week the opportunity to uh, hear so many great men preach the gospel of Christ. And to be fed last week is really what I needed. And I, I know it's what so many of us needed. And so I, I hope we have another great week in store for us with a lot of great men and a lot of great lessons ahead of us. And, you know, as we think tonight about we think tonight about the Lord's church. So, so often what happens even within the church and outside the church is people just talk about what's wrong with the church. They say, well, here, let me tell you what's wrong. And sometimes you'll go and visit a congregation and you say, you know, what's going on here? Well, let me tell you what's going on. In here. And, and we just talk about the bad things. We talk about things we don't like. We talk about what things that should be better. And, and we just say, here's what's wrong with the church. Sometimes our minds get fed with that negativity uh, when it comes to the Lord's church and we get down. Uh, we get discouraged and we wonder, you know, you know why, why, can't it, why can't it be this or why can't it be that? Tonight, I don't, want it to, I don't want us to focus in on any negativity. Tonight, I don't want us to focus in on what man might think is wrong with the church. The Bible teaches us that the church belongs to Christ. And so tonight, I want to talk about that church, that church that we read about in the New Testament, the church that belongs to Christ. And I want us to think tonight about what makes that church so good. Not, and and it's, not, it's not our ideas. It's not, it, it's not my opinion tonight about what makes the church great. I want us to go to the Bible, and I, I want to allow it to teach us tonight. What is it that makes Christ's church so great? We're going to use that word great throughout this lesson tonight. That's why it's in all capitals on this screen here tonight. And I want to share with you tonight, in just the time that we have, seven great things about Christ's church. And I hope maybe you'll write these things down and maybe you'll share them with some friends of yours. And I hope when we're done with our study tonight that we will all be more encouraged. You know, we're, we're going through a discouraging time right now and some challenging times for the church, and, but we need to be encouraged. And, and the way we can do that is to get into God's word and to see what is so great about Christ's church. Number one thing I want us to see tonight is that Christ's church is so great because of the great plan that brought it about. You know, it's fascinating to me to think about the fact that when we study the scripture, that God had the church in mind before he ever created the world, before he ever created the universe, before he ever created man. God already had the church in mind. We see that in Ephesians chapter 10, or Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, where the Bible teaches us that God had an eternal purpose. And a part of that eternal purpose was his church. I want you to think about that. Before God ever said, let there be light. Before God ever said, let us make man in our image, that man that would ultimately be a part of his church, God already had in mind that he was going to bring about on this earth his church. That's a great plan. It was not a, an afterthought in the mind of God that came along later when, you know, some, some individuals had the idea that, well, God, God, didn't, God, God didn't plan for the church from the beginning, but when Christ came, they, they rejected the concept of the kingdom that Jesus brought, and so that the Lord established his church as kind of a, a stopgap measure, a temporary measure, until later he would come and establish the kingdom, but that's not what Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 teaches. 
God had this in mind from the very beginning. And so as we begin reading through our Old Testament, we begin reading prophet after prophet after prophet who is telling us about this church, sometimes called a kingdom, sometimes called a house, that, that God was saying, I am going to bring this into existence. And so Nathan the prophet told David about it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Isaiah tells us about that, that house of the Lord that would be established in, in Isaiah chapter 2. And Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 2. So here we have a span of hundreds of years where God's prophets are talking about this kingdom, this house, this church that God had in mind from before the, but the world began. And now he's going to say, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then John the Baptist comes on the scene. And we turn our pages, our Bible to the pages of the New Testament, and we see John the Baptist coming. And what's John the Baptist preaching? John the Baptist is preaching the same thing those Old Testament prophets were preaching. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those Jews should have known that, that concept of being at hand. It was right there. It was on the cusp of being established. And John the Baptist saying, it's right here. Jesus came and Jesus taught the very same thing in Matthew chapter 4. In verse 17, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He sent his disciples out to proclaim the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Would not it have been wonderful to be there in that day and to hear that good news that the kingdom is here. The kingdom is coming. And wouldn't you know it, that God fulfilled, we're going to see this in the third point tonight, so I don't want to dwell here too long, but God fulfilled these prophecies, this promise, this eternal purpose. God fulfilled this precisely as he had planned. I want you to think about that. Have, have you ever planned something well in advance and it came together precisely as you had planned it? I dare say that's not the case. Even on that old TV show when, when Hannibal would say, I love it when a plan comes together. I don't know that it always came together precisely as Hannibal had in mind, but God brought about his church just as he had intended. And so when Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2 and begins to preach, when he says, this is that, in verse 16, this is that the prophet Joel talked about, Peter is saying that this is the day that all of these things are coming into fruition. All of these things are coming into fulfillment. And God bringing about his church. You know what makes God's church so great? Because of that great plan. I share an idea and thought with you tonight. We're talking about Christ's church tonight. It's great because of the great plan that put it into place. But may I share with you tonight that there is no man-made organization. There's no man-made church on this earth that can claim that. That can claim to be a part of the great plan of God. Only Christ's church, the one that he established and make that plan. What makes Christ's church so great? It's great because of its great plan, but in the second place tonight, I want us to see that it's great because of the great price that was paid for it. You know the great price that was paid for it. You know that the Bible teaches that Jesus purchased the church. What was the price? How much did the church cost? Bible teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church. And how much did he love the church? What did it cost him? He gave himself for it. Jesus gave himself up for the church. He died 
for the church. But it was not just that he died on behalf of the church. It's not just that he expired by natural causes. The Bible teaches us that Jesus was crucified. The only way that we can claim to wear the name of Christ, the only way that we can belong to Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 13 teaches us that Christ had to be crucified for us. The, the purchase price of the church was Jesus giving himself up. Was Jesus being crucified? But ultimately, the purchase price of the Lord's church was the blood of our Savior. And that's what Acts 20 and verse 28 teaches. That Christ purchased the church not with the blood of animals, not with the blood of someone else. Jesus purchased the church with his own blood, thus making him its Savior, thus making him its Lord, thus making him its head in Ephesians chapter 5. There's only one head of the Lord's church, and it's Jesus Christ himself. And he's the head because he's the one who gave himself, was crucified, and shed his blood for the church. You know, sometimes, sometimes all we can think about is what's wrong with the church. You know what makes the church so great? Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died on that cross. And he shed his blood so that his church could come into existence, so that we could be a part of his church. That's what makes it so great. Can I share a thought with you tonight? Christ's church is great because of the price that was paid for it. That there is no man-made organization. There is no man-made church on this earth that can claim that. Only Christ's church was purchased by Christ, belongs to Christ because of his precious blood. That makes his church so great. It's great because of the great plan. It's great because of the great price that was paid. But that great plan, as we've already kind of alluded to, that great plan came into fruition, came to fulfillment in Acts chapter 2. On the great Pentecost. Oh, there were there were a lot of Pentecosts before Acts chapter two. There was there was a Pentecost in the history of the Jews for over a thousand years. But the great Pentecost is the one we read about in Acts chapter two and verse one, where Luke tells us when the day of Pentecost had fully come. This is that day that that God talked about that God had been longing for for all of those man-made years. But this is the day that God had been longing for from before all creation. His eternal plan was now coming into existence in Acts chapter 2. This chapter is so wonderful to study because it's in Acts chapter 2 where we see that God brought about the, the establishment of his church exactly when he planned to establish it. I want you to think again about sometimes we make plans, but they don't always happen exactly when we plan for it to happen. This had happened exactly when God planned for it to happen. In Daniel chapter 2, Daniel prophesied more than 500 years before Jesus ever came to this earth. In verse 44, he said, in the days of these kings, in the days of that fourth kingdom, that fourth world empire we know to be the Roman Empire, 
and the days of the Roman emperor, the days of the Roman kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Daniel pinpointed, not in the nation, not in the empire of Babylon, not during the days of the Medes and the Persians, not during the days of the Greeks, but in the days of the Romans. That's when God's going to set up his kingdom. And so when John the Baptist comes and says, it's at hand, when Jesus says, it is at hand, and even in Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, when Jesus says, it's not many days away, it happened exactly when God said it would happen. It came into existence exactly where God said it would happen. Back in Isaiah chapter 2, God said and God prophesied more than 700 years before the church ever came into existence. God pinpointed that this was going to happen in the city of Jerusalem. God could have picked any place on this earth, but 700 years before it ever happened, he said it's going to be in the city of Jerusalem. And so in Luke chapter 24, and verse 47, and in verse 49, Jesus told his apostles, he said, that, that remission and remission, that repentance, remission of sins should be preached in his name, beginning at Jerusalem, verse 47. Told his disciples in verse 49 to tarry in the city of Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high. Jesus pinpointed the city of Jerusalem, and before he ascended in Acts chapter 1, he said, That's where it's all going to start. It came into existence exactly when God said, exactly where God planned for it to happen, and exactly how God planned for his church to come into existence. In Mark chapter 9, in verse 1, Jesus is looking at some individuals and on that occasion, looking at his disciples, and he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 1, there be some standing here. He's looking at them right in the eye. He says, there be some standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God present with power. Jesus didn't just say that the kingdom was going to come in their lifetime. That was going to happen. He pinpointed the time frame. But he said how it was going to happen. It was going to come with power. And so in Luke chapter 24, verse 49, he tells the disciples, you tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. The kingdom is going to come with power. That power is going to come from on high. And before he ascends in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says, you're going to be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. But Jesus, how is that going to happen? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive that power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And so what happens in Acts chapter 2? In Acts chapter 2, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all accord in one place. And what happened in those first four verses? The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance in verse 4. The Holy Spirit came upon the apostles in Acts 2 verse 4. What do we know from that? We know that the Holy Spirit coming with, with the, the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles in Acts 2 and verse 4, that meant that he was coming from on high. That meant he was coming with power. That meant that on that day, exactly when, exactly where, and exactly how God said it was going to happen. No wonder. No wonder there have been individuals for years and years who have talked about Acts chapter 2 as the hub of the Bible. They've described it in those terms because everything you are reading before you get to Acts chapter 2, from Genesis chapter 1 through Acts chapter 1, Everything you are reading is saying, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. And then you get to Acts chapter 2, and God says, it's here. And then you get to Acts chapter 3, and you read through Revelation chapter 22, and it's saying, it's here, it's here, it's, it's, it's present, it's already in existence. And so everything before Acts 2 is pointing forward. Everything after Acts chapter 2 is pointing backwards. Right to Acts 2 is the hub of the Bible to say, this is when God brought his eternal plan into existence. What an exciting thing to say. 
What an exciting thing to see God's plan come together. But can I share something with you tonight? There is no man-made organization. There's no man-originated church that can claim this. Only Christ's church is a part of God's great plan. Only Christ's church was bought at a great price. And only Christ's church came into existence on their great behest. That's what makes the Lord's church so great. In the fourth place tonight, I want us to see that Christ's church is so great because of the great pattern that it has to follow. You know what's refreshing? What's refreshing about Christ's church when you study it in the New Testament is that these men, they were not following their own whims. These men were not following their own ideas, their own desires. They were not making up a church as they were going along that would fit their needs or their wants. What's great when we read about the church in the New Testament is that God had given them a pattern. Given them a pattern to follow. A perfect pattern. And that pattern was found in the New Testament. And so in the New Testament, God gave to his followers everything that they would need to know what his church would look like. Everything they would need to know how his church was to function, how it was to be organized, and how it was to worship. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that's what we see in those last two verses, beginning in verse 16. All scriptures given by the inspiration of God. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That why, God, did you give us the scripture? Why do we have the New Testament today? That the man of God may be perfect. That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. When I've got my Bible, when I've got my New Testament, I am complete. I have all of the information. I'm thoroughly equipped with all of the information that God would have me to know about his church, about life and godliness in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. But in addition to that, and what makes this book so wonderful is that God not only in the New Testament gives us all of the instruction that we need in order to know how his church is to be in existence on the earth this day, but God gives us in this same book examples of the New Testament church in that first century doing what he told them to do. I want you to think about that. You know, sometimes we, we like books that have pictures in them. And this, this book is a book that has pictures in it. Not, not pictures that you can pick up and, and color inside, but when you read the books, and especially when you turn and read the book of Acts, and you read the epistles that follow, you read a picture book of God saying, here's the instructions for the church, and now let me show you how that church in Acts 2 and verse 42, how they continue. Here's a picture of this church, how they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and praise. We see a church doing exactly what God told them to do. In Acts 8 and verse 4, we read about a church going everywhere and preaching the word. They, we see the instruction to preach the word, but now we see a picture of them going and doing just that. We see in Acts 20 and verse 7 that the church on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. We see a picture. We see an example of the church doing exactly what God wanted them to do. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to realize 
that when we pick up our Bibles, God has given us a pattern. We pick up our New Testament, and God has given us a pattern. But shouldn't we expect that? In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, the Hebrews writer quotes and refers back to the Old Testament period when Moses was given a pattern for the building of the tabernacle. What does that mean? You go back and read the last half of the book of Exodus nearly. You read those, those last 15 chapters, especially, of the book of Exodus, and you begin, you, you're reading a pattern that God is giving to Moses. Here's exactly how I want my tabernacle built. Moses didn't have to guess. Moses didn't have to wonder what God wanted in his tabernacle. He had the pattern, Hebrews 8, verse 5. He had the pattern to follow precisely. And don't you know, that's what God's given to us in his church. If he gave it for the tabernacle in the Old Testament, which was, which was a foreshadowing of the church in the New Testament, he gave us a pattern in the New Testament. We've got that pattern of sound words that Paul talks about, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13, where we pick up the book. And if we follow his pattern, think about this. If we follow his pattern in the New Testament, then the church that follows the pattern of the New Testament in 2020 will be the same church that God put into existence in that first century without addition, without subtraction, because it's simply following the pattern that God has given for his church. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up with three sisters. And I remember my mom having those patterns that she would use to make my sisters those dresses. And I remember that she would cut out that pattern to get the right, to get the precise size for, for my sister. And then she would lay that pattern out, and let's say she laid it out on some green pattern cloth, and she would lay it out, she would pin it there, and then she would cut around that pattern. And when she was done cutting, she'd take the pattern off. And, and what did that green, that green pattern uh, cloth look like? It looked exactly like the then she would take that pattern and lay it down, let's say, on some red pattern cloth. And she'd lay it down and pin it, and she'd cut around that pattern again, and she'd take that red pattern that red pattern cloth up, and what did it look like? It looked exactly like the green pattern cloth. It looked exactly like the pattern she started with. We understand the concept of the pattern. And I suspect that if my mom, this day, all of these decades later, I suspect that if she were to still have one of those patterns, and still pull it out of her drawer and lay it out on some purple patterned uh, cloth and pin it to it and cut it out, guess what would happen? The same exact form, the same exact thing would come out even all of these decades later. Why? Because a pattern remains the same after all those years. The New Testament is our pattern. It doesn't matter what land you take it to. It doesn't matter what century you take it to. As long as God's pattern is followed precisely as he gave it, and we cut around the edges just as he told us to do, then the church that we will have today will be exactly, not a little bit like, it will be exactly the church that he put into existence on that great day. That's exciting. Think about, we don't need to be a, a part of a, of a church that some man has put together or what some man thought would be good or patterned after some doctrine of human minds. Church pattern after. So the church today can worship precisely as God intended it to worship in the New Testament. It can be organized precisely as God intended to be organized in his New Testament pattern. And everything else that's involved in this church, what a great 
share a thought with you tonight. There is no man-made organization, no man-made institution, no man-made church today that can claim that. Only Christ's church will result from his pattern being followed perfectly. May God help us to follow his pattern in order that we might be a part of Christ's church today. But as we continue this thought tonight about what's so great about Christ's church, there's the great plan. There's the great price. There's the great Pentecost that it came into existence, the great pattern that we have to follow. But in the fifth place tonight, I want us to think about the great purpose that God gave to his church. You know, when God established his church on that great Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, he did not leave the church just to do whatever the church wanted to do. He gave his people, he gave his church the great purpose. And sometimes we don't think about those words that precisely is the great purpose. But let me share with you a passage from Mark chapter 16, verse 15. You tell me, what is it that we commonly call this? In Mark 16, verse 15, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel every creature. Go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 and 20. What, how do we refer to those passages of Scripture? We may not refer to them as the great purpose, but we call them the great commission. When God commissioned, God gave to his children a commandment to go and to preach to every creature on this earth. What a great privilege that great purpose is. Think about the fact that God, when it came time for him to spread the good news about Christ, when it came time for God to spread the good news about salvation, when it came time for God to tell the world how they could be saved and to go to heaven, he commissioned that good news to earthen vessels, to jars of clay, to little old us. We have been entrusted with the most precious news on the face of this earth. We have been entrusted to go and to share with others what they need to do in order to be right with God. We get to tell others what Jesus did for them and why he did it. And we get to tell others what Jesus wants from them and why he wants it. This is not some kind of a burden. This is not some kind of an obligation that we need to see. We need to see it as the great privilege that it is to go and to tell others what Jesus has done for them so that they can hear the good word of God. The Bible teaches that faith comes by hearing by the word of God. We need to be those who will help individuals to hear the good news so that that faith can come from hearing, so that they can come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, as that jailer was told to do in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. And so that faith that Jesus died for them, that he was buried, that he was raised again, so that, that faith can cause them to look at the sins that they have committed and say, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. That caused Jesus to go to the cross. My faith in Jesus recognizes what he did for me, and I want to turn away from that sin. I want to turn my life in the direction of God. 
Bible calls that repentance. The Bible says that if we will repent, that we can have the remission of sins in Acts 2 and verse 13. The Bible teaches that when I've made up my mind that I want to stop doing wrong and start doing right and repent and turn my life in the direction of God, that I'll be able to confess the faith that's in my heart. Great privilege to be able to say, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And upon my confession, to do exactly what every other person in the New Testament did in order to become a Christian, in order to be saved, in order to become a part of this church, they were baptized. Baptized, Peter said in Acts 2 verse 38, for the remission of sins. Baptized, Ananias told Saul, to be had their, his sins washed away, Acts 22 and verse 16. We get to share that with We've been entrusted with that message to go and tell others about God, to tell them about the great wisdom of God and to manifest that to others. We get to tell them that in Acts, two, in Acts 3 and verse 10. We get to be those who share the glory of God. The church has the glory of God within it, and we get to go out and glorify God as a part of his church, sharing that good news, Ephesians chapter 3. We get the privilege to be just like Philip in Acts 8 and verse 35 and to tell others to preach and to live Jesus. What a great purpose. A great privilege. Paul said in Colossians 1 and verse 28, Him, Christ, we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad that God has given unto his children, has given into our hands, that he entrusted us? He didn't send angels to go and do it. He sent us. As I think about the great privilege and this great purpose God has given to me challenges me. It challenges me to see souls wherever I go. It challenges me to recognize that the world is lost. And nearly every person that I see on a daily basis is in need of what I know, of what I have. The precious gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given unto us the purpose to go and to share that with others. Can I share something else with you tonight? There is no man-made organization. No man-instituted church today that can claim this exact purpose. For to claim this purpose means not just that we go and tell others about Jesus, but that we tell them precisely what Jesus said to do in order to be saved. We have that responsibility. And so we need to help others to see that it's only through their obedience to the gospel of Christ that they can be saved and that they can have the promise of heaven. You know, there's some people, when they talk about the church, all they want to talk about is negative things. All they want to do is talk down the church and talk about what's wrong. We need to talk about what's great about the church. The New Testament tells us over and over what's so great about his church. 
We've got two more points tonight in the time that remains. What is so great about Christ's church? Now don't, don't get a big head on this point. I want, to, I, want, I want to allow us to develop this point. But what makes his church so great? What makes his church so great are the great people that make up his church. Now, there may be some Christians that are here and I say, oh, yeah, yeah, yep, that's right. The church is great because I am in it. That's, that's not exactly what we're saying here. That's not exactly what God is saying. But what we need to see is that God's church is great because of the great people that God has put into his church. Who's in Christ's church? I want you to think about that question. Who is in Christ's church? You know, the word church comes from a Greek word, ekklesia. And it simply means the called out ones. I want you to think about that. The church, by definition, by the use of that very word, are the ones who have been called out. They're called out ones. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, when Paul addresses that letter to the church at Corinth, he addresses it to the church at Corinth, those who are sanctified, those who are called to be saints. Saints are the sanctified. They are the ones who have been set apart. They are the ones who have been called out. And while the word is not found in 1 Peter 2, and verse 9, the concept, and in fact, the definition is there, in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, where Peter talks to the church, he talks to Christians in the church, and he says, you are a chosen generation, you are a royal priesthood, you're a holy nation, you're his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him, listen to this, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness, there it is, he called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's church. The church are those individuals who have been called out of darkness but into the church of Jesus Christ. Who is in? Who is it that makes up Christ's church? Christ's church is made up of those called out ones and is made up of all of God's saved people. Don't you think about this for a minute? The church is made up of all of God's saved people. In Acts chapter 2, that great Pentecost day, that great day when God's church came into existence. In Acts chapter 2, the Bible says that when Peter was preaching that sermon about Jesus being crucified, that they had taken him by their lawless hands and crucified the Son of God, but God raised him from the dead and he made him, he made Jesus to be both Lord and Christ. And Acts chapter 2, verse 37 says, they were touching their hearts. They were touching their hearts. They realized they had done wrong and, and, and they realized that they that they had crucified the Son of God. And they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Great question. What do they want to know? Is there any hope for us? What can we do to be saved from this horrible sin that we have committed? What did Peter say to them? Repent. And let every one of you, this is Acts 2 and verse 38, repent and let every one of you be baptized. Peter, why in the world should we do that? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Not on Peter's authority, but on Christ's authority. In the name of Jesus Christ for. That word means in order to obtain. Not because you already have something, but that word means always. It's always used this way in the New Testament. For in order to obtain something you don't have yet. What is that, Peter? For the remission of your sins. 
Repent and be baptized so that your sins can be forgiven. Repent and be baptized so that you can be saved from your sins. What happened in Acts 2? Those, verse 41, those who gladly received his word, what did they do? They did exactly what Peter said. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. What does it say in verse 41? And there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. And the King James, the New King James, down in verse 47, the Bible says, the Lord added unto the church daily. Who was he adding to the church, according to Acts 2 and verse 47? Unto the church, God was adding those who were being saved. Individuals were believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized, because that's what they were taught to do throughout the New Testament. And there in Acts 2, that's what they were taught to do. Repent to be baptized, to be saved. And when they were saved, God forgave them of their sins. And immediately, verse 41, and immediately, verse 47, God added them to his great church. Added them to the church that was bought at that great price. Do you believe that? The Bible makes it so clear. The Bible makes it so simple that individuals don't choose to join the church. Individuals are not voted into a church. When they obey the Lord's commandments, and when they are saved according to the Lord's pattern, they are added by Christ to his church, his great church. Who's in the church? It's those who are saved. Those who are saved, God put them in the church. Those who are in the church are those who are saved. Whenever you talk about the saved, you're talking about the church. Whenever you talk about the church, you're talking about the saved. They are one in the same. You can't be saved unless you're in the church. You can't be in the church unless you're saved according to the commandments and according to the pattern the Lord has laid out. Who's in the church? Those who are in the church are those that the Bible describes as being in Christ. That terminology is found throughout the New Testament. And, and there's a number of blessings, or Ephesians 1 and verse 3. Those all spiritual blessings are found for those who are in Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 says one of those blessings is salvation. And salvation is found for those who are in Christ. So those who are in his church are those who are in Christ. But I want us to see that it's one and the same thing. That if one is in Christ, one is in his church. In Galatians 3 and verse 27, there's only two verses in the New Testament that teach us how to get into Christ. Romans 6 and verse 3 is one of them. The only other one is Galatians 3 and verse 27. How do, I, how do I obtain all spiritual blessings that are found in Christ, Ephesians 1 verse 3? How do I obtain salvation, which is one of those blessings in Christ, 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10? How do I, or 2 and verse 10? How do I obtain the promise of eternal life that is found for those who are in Christ, 1 John 5 and verse 11? The way that I do that is I must get into Christ. And the only way I get into Christ, Galatians 3 and verse 27, is to be baptized into Christ. Isn't it interesting that we're seeing the same words and the same pattern used to talk about how to get into Christ, that one needs to be baptized to get into Christ? It's interesting that when you turn your Bible over to 1 Corinthians, just a few pages over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13, Paul uses similar terminology, but there he says that we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. What happened when they were baptized? When the Corinthians were baptized, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul says they were baptized into the one body. What's the body? What's the body? Ephesians 1, 
verses 22 and 23 tells us that the body is the church. The church is the body. It's synonymous. As, as we read about the church throughout the New Testament, there's a number of, uh, of words that are used to describe it, and, and the word body just it tells us an, an idea of what the church looks like. It's the body of believers. And so in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, when individuals were baptized for their remission of their sins, they were baptized into the church. Galatians 3, verse 27, when individuals were baptized for the remission of their sins, they were baptized into Christ. What do we see here? That to be in Christ is the same thing as to be in the church. To be in the church is the same thing as it is to be in Christ. Sometimes there are individuals who, who hear so much teaching about the church, they'll say, well, you know, I, I'm not just, the, the church just isn't really my thing. You can have the church and I'll just take Christ. They don't realize is that's not possible. It's not possible for somebody to say, well, I'll just take Christ and you can have the church. The church is described in the New Testament as the body of Christ. If I reject the church, I have rejected the body of Christ. Therefore, I have rejected Christ. I cannot be in Christ unless I am in his body, which is his church. That's who makes up this great church. Those who have been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus when they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Those who are in Christ. And what are those individuals doing? We've seen what the church is. We've seen who the, who the church is. But what are these individuals doing who are in the church? Who, what, what makes the church so great? It's made up of people that care for one another. Throughout the New Testament, we read so many one another passages. That's what we call them sometimes, where the Bible talks about love, that we are to love one another. John chapter 13, verse 34, where we are to serve one another in love. Galatians 5 and verse 13, where we are to do good uh, unto all men, especially those of the household of faith, to one another. In Galatians 6 and verse 10, where we are to care for one another, have the same care for one another. First Corinthians Chapter 12 and verse 25, we're to bear one another's burdens in Galatians 6 and verse 2. What makes the church so great when the church is looking out for one another? When it's looking out for the least of these, my brethren, Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talked about. And we look out for the least of his, these, his brethren, Jesus says we're serving. Here we are as his church, striving for the common goal. Striving for the faith of the gospel. Striving that the gospel might be proclaimed throughout all lands on this earth. Striving also, not only Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27, for the faith of the gospel. Striving together to reach heaven's shore. When you think about the church, sure, there are people in the church that maybe give the church a bad name. Sure, there are people in the church that, that, that may cause us to, to, to have different issues that we have to deal with in the church. But you know, we all have issues. We've all got problems. That's why we need to take care of each other. That's why Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24, we need to consider one another. And when it's needed, we need to stir one another up to love and good works. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that he has given us his church. What makes his church so great? 
This church is great because of the great people. Not, not because I'm great, not because you're great, not because somebody else might be considered great, but great because Hebrews chapter has put into his church. Can I share something with you tonight? There's no man-made institution. There's no man-made church that can make that claim. Because once individuals obey the gospel of Christ and follow the pattern that he has laid out, they are put into his great church. The one that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Not into some man-originated church. The last thing I want us to see tonight. What's so great about Christ's church? You could come up with others. There are a lot of reasons you could find in the New Testament that the Lord's church is so great. These are just a few that we are looking at tonight, but the last one I want us to see is that Christ's church is great because of the great promise that it has. What promise? What promise does the church that belongs to Christ, what does that church, what promise does it have? What promise has God given unto that church? What hope does that church have? The Bible teaches us in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, we, we, here's where we've come. And we've come in verse 23 to, to the, we've come to the church of the firstborn. We've come to the general assembly, verse 23 begins. We've come to the general assembly. We've come to the church of the firstborn. Church of, belongs to Christ. But what does he say after that? The church of the firstborn who are registered, or your Bible might have the word enrolled, who are registered or enrolled in heaven. When someone obeys the pattern, the great pattern that God has given, and when they do that and they repent and are baptized for remission of their sins, and God puts them into the great church that came about on the great day of Pentecost, they are registered by God in heaven. They're enrolled by God in heaven. Why? Because they are a part of the church of the firstborn. Only those, apparently, only those, and, and, and what, what I mean by that is, only those implied in that passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 23, only those who are in his church are enrolled. What does that say about somebody who's not in his church? They are not yet enrolled, not yet registered in heaven. What's the promise of his church? That they're not just now registered or enrolled, have their names recorded in heaven. Promise that God has given to his church. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 24, where the Bible says, then comes the end, the end of time. Then comes the end when Christ comes and he delivers his kingdom. The kingdom's the church. Jesus promised to build his church in Matthew 16, verse 18. And he said, I'm going to give you the keys to that kingdom to get into that church. The kingdom is the church. And 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24 says that he's going to deliver the kingdom, the church, to his followers. Who's going to be delivered to heaven? At the end of time, who's going to be delivered to the Father by Jesus? That verse says it's going to be those who are in his kingdom. It's going to be those who are in his church. The Bible teaches us that those who are in Christ have the promise of eternal life. Wages of sin is death, Romans 6, verse 23 says. But the gift of God is eternal life. Where is that eternal life? In Christ Jesus. Only those who are in Christ will have the gift of eternal life. What do we learn about those who are in Christ? It's the same thing about those in this church. 
Only those who are in Christ's church, only those who are in Christ will get to spend an eternity with our Lord in Only those who have their name written in the book of life. Anyone not found written in the book of life is cast into the lake of fire. The closing verses of Revelation chapter 20 teach, and the last verse of Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 teaches the same. What's so great about the church? Christ's church, he established, was given this great promise to spend an eternity with him. And I share this thought with you tonight. There's no man-made, no man-instituted church that can claim that. Only the church that Christ put into existence on the great day of Pentecost nearly 2,000 years ago. Only his church has that promise. As we close tonight, as you think about what we've studied tonight, what's so great about his church? It has nothing to do with any man or what any man thought or what any man put on this earth. What's so great about his church? It's great because of the great plan, the great price, the great Pentecost, the great pattern, the great purpose, the great people. And I ask you a question. Are you a part of his church? Are you a part of that church? And if you are not, may I plead with you, Open up the pattern. Find in the pages of this book the church God had in mind from the very beginning. And the church that God will spend an eternity with forever and ever. Find that church. It's found in the pattern pages of this book. And become a part of that church today. If you need any help in doing that, please, please reach out to me. To any to anyone that you see listed on the on the speakers on the on this on this great gospel meeting that's taking place, please find his church and become a part of it today. It's been a joy to be a part of this great gospel meeting, and I thank Jonathan and I thank Eric for putting this together for our souls to be fed in the midst of this time where we're separated and dealing with all of this social distancing and being drawn together in the study of God's word is truly a blessing. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for studying God's word with me tonight.